But first, Elon Musk over the weekend did a little bit of his own tweet. Another new move from the mind of Elon Musk. And I'm going to read this tweet before we get to our guest, Andy Brar. Uh, Elon Musk said, to address extreme levels of data scraping, whatever that is, I guess the, those in the know know what it is, uh, the extreme levels of data scraping and system manipulation, we've applied the following temporary limits. A, verified accounts are now limited to reading 6,000 posts a day. B, more importantly for most of us, unverified accounts to 600 posts a day. And C, for some of us, new unverified accounts, 300 a day. That's both posts and, as it turns out, some of the tweets we end up sending out. You think about it and you think about, oh, okay, is this really going to, as Elon Musk say, push us to enjoy maybe going outdoors more or enjoying life more? Or is this possibly a little bit dangerous when you think of all the different things that Twitter can end up doing for communicating in natural disasters, uh, police emergencies, uh, BC wildfires, you know, things like that. And this is an extreme move for sure. It's already having a bit of an impact. Drive BC has noticed that they can communicate as well. They've tweeted about that this weekend. Let's talk about this latest move and bring in Andy Brar, who is an expert on all things technology, especially when it comes to this. Uh, Andy, tech and digital lifestyle expert that you are at handyandymedia.com. What is going on with this, Andy? <laughs> Bruce, I think Twitter's had its worst weekend ever. And they've had a lot since Elon Musk uh, took over. But this one um, is really confusing, to, to, to be honest with you. Basically, what Elon Musk is saying, what Twitter is doing, and what actually might be happening behind the scenes. Essentially, what he's doing, he's limiting how much we can see, like tweets we can see, which kind of shoots himself in the foot because his whole business strategy or historically for Twitter has been on ads. He's trying to attract advertisers back onto the platform. I don't think advertisers want to go on a platform where people are limited to what they can see unless they are Twitter subscribers. So none of it really makes sense to me, Bruce, but I think really what's happening I think the truth really is what happening is Elon Musk is not paying his bills and they're they're trying to cut costs and the AI thing though the the data scraping I think he does have a point but I think he's kind of wishwashing the reasonings of why he's doing this and then to tweet oh I did this because we need to spend less time on Twitter and be outside yeah. so all of it just doesn't make sense to me Bruce Yeah you know you start with the very technical I didn't know what data scraping is uh and um of course you just explained it a little bit and then I, I guess to kind of bring it back to the average person like me, oh, yeah, if we want you to spend more time outdoors. Well, it's either or can't be both of them. And at the end of the day, I guess it's just what you said. It's going to be the fact that Twitter still is not making the profits that uh, he promised we would end up seeing or he would end up seeing. Yeah, we have to remember Twitter is a private company. This is a social media company that's private. Not only that, he's trying something new that no one in the social media space has ever tried, and that's social media as a subscription service. So the diehard Twitter fans, if you start paying about, what, $8 a month, you can have all these extra features on Twitter. You could tweet longer, more than 280 characters and and such, and your, your tweets will get more exposure. He's trying to go against 
you know, attract content creators and really push video. You're starting to see Elon Musk really, you're seeing more and more videos. And Bruce, I don't know if you notice this, but it, what you'll notice if you watch a video on Twitter and you swipe up, you can just watch the next video on Twitter. So yeah. it's starting to even look uh, a little bit like TikTok. Yeah. So it's very interesting what he's doing. But what happened this weekend, the fact that there was these, the, the daily, I think it's because he's not paying his bills for cloud storage. I know he has some unpaid bills with Google and having just this overload of activity on Twitter, which is really what they want to get attract advertisers, is also putting a load on his, uh, on his entire system because we know he's made a lot of cuts. As soon as he took over, he cut about half the, the workforce. So Twitter is a slimmed down Twitter uh, of the past, but... It remains to be seen if he's going to actually make money off this. You know, it's interesting, Andy. The first I saw or heard about this, I thought it was a mistake or an error or some problem on my side. I was actually searching through Twitter like I often do, and I am a huge consumer of Twitter news. But I noticed that it said that I had reached a cap, and I thought, what's going on here? What is this problem? So it was a shock by experience first, and then I saw the explanations later. But it comes down to this, and this is where I'm really concerned. So many public agencies now communicate through Twitter with officialdom. Some of it is stuff that we need to know. Some of it's stuff we don't. But the need to know, and I think of this heading into the summer, things like updates with BC wildfires and possible evacuations, where you have regional districts sending out notices using social media. Now, if somebody has already hit their limit, they will not see that. But more importantly, almost everybody uh, would be in a situation where they're checking on Twitter and rechecking and rechecking for something, hitting that limit right away. That's got to be concerning. Absolutely. This is what people use Twitter for. This is where Twitter really showed its value is for real-time information and, and getting that information into, into the hands of people. Um, I don't think he really thought about this really when he implemented it. I think it happened by accident and he's just trying to make, you know, it's kind of like a private business where something happens and you just try to make an excuse and no, everything's fine. Everything's good. We're, we're open for business. But at the same time, he's having a lot of trouble. What he said about AI was interesting. He was talking about data scraping and I think the best way to understand that is yeah. chat GPT. We all use it. Everybody's trying it out. What we don't realize is we're actually helping that AI get smarter because we're putting data into it and it's starting to understand and get better. Essentially, what Elon is saying with Twitter is that these AI companies are using the information on Twitter that's happening in real time and scraping all that data to make their AI system smarter. This is a big issue in the AI space about, you know, do you own your data and, are, and should AI companies pay to get access to this publicly free data that's all over the Internet? I, I think he has a point on that, but, but just the way that Twitter is designed – it's just going to get scraped. That's how people are. are well, AI the, is going to be content. here no matter what. There is going to be the gathering of information no matter what for for AI. Whether it's opinion or fact, that remains to be seen. And as you know, uh, Andy, a lot of what we see on Twitter is simply opinion stated as fact. Yeah, Twitter is just a, a you know, anybody can tweet. And I think that's a, a great thing and also one of the problems of, of Twitter. 
I don't know about you, Bruce, but if you've been on Twitter lately, it looks a lot different. It seems that they're really pushing for like more viral content to keep our eyeballs engaged on it. And I think that's an example of AI because Twitter is looking at what what videos are engaging and then pushing that out. You don't even have to be a follower of certain accounts and still see content. And that's where I've really noticed a big difference since Elon's taken over is that it's not just about who you're following. It's really about what is being engaged on Twitter and whether you follow that account or not, you're probably going to see it because Twitter already realizes that it's engaging content, but it doesn't make it better content. No. It's just about eyeballs. Really, with what TikTok and, and all the other platforms are about. It's just keeping us engaged onto that platform. So for him to put that limit on it kind of just self-defeats the entire purpose of it, which is why it's so confusing with what he's saying and what he's doing. Nothing is really making sense. Bruce Clackett in for Jill talking with Andy Brar about this latest move by Elon Musk on Twitter, making sure that there are now caps on how many tweets you can read per day for new unverified accounts. 300 a day for unverified accounts in general, 600 a day. Sounds like a lot, but once you're into it, it really isn't a lot. And my concern that I expressed was, what about uh, emergency notices, evacuations, things that have to go out to the public? Yes, many agencies do use Twitter. Got one tweet. It says, police, fire, and emergency services should absolutely not be using Twitter to alert citizens to emergencies. I think that's what happened in Nova Scotia and should be a lesson in the danger in that. Curious to hear any of your comments, 604-280-9898 on this move by Elon Musk, described as temporary, we'll definitely end up seeing. Andy, here's another one, and I bounce this off you, uh, just as your thoughts and the power of how we use social media. Uh, Drive BC, which gives out very important information about the highways and closures, it has already this weekend tweeted, heads up, as many others have noticed this weekend, Drive BC on Twitter and its sub accounts have exceeded the temporary imposed post rate limit. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause and appreciate your patience while we work to resolve this issue going forward. To be honest, Andy, I don't know what sort of work Drive BC can do. It's uh, Elon Musk. I mean, this is just crazy. Yeah, you know, if one thing Elon Musk could have done is give everybody a heads up that he was going to roll this out. Not just to have it on a weekend where everyone just suddenly gets this notification that they're, they've exceeded their rate limit. And what's really happened, and what was interesting is, by, by mentioning that emergency services rely on platforms like Twitter, it just shows that the industry is ripe for some type of competition to Twitter. And we already know that Facebook or Meta, the parent company, is working on some type of clone for Twitter. But there's another one called Blue Sky, Bruce. I don't know if you heard of it. It was co-founded by the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, yeah. which is really interesting. I always wish I could talk to Jack and be like, you know, what's it like to create something and then someone buys it and just kind of runs it to the ground? Like, what does that must feel like? In his case, he's probably looking and seeing the holes uh, that has been created by Musk taking over Twitter and is trying to attract people to Blue Sky. It's an invite only right now. So that's how they're trying to to create that demand, internal demand for to get uh, into it. You would have to know somebody to give you that kind of invite. 
But because of this outage, Bruce, they had record-breaking traffic uh, of people trying to sign up that they actually had to like close things down because of the, the, the servers couldn't handle that spike in traffic. So whether it's, it's Blue Sky, whether it's Meta, I think you're going to see that that new alternative to Twitter because we had these other ones, Mastodon yep. and, and these other ones. That everyone Which was said supposed to be the alternative if you it were was, really dissatisfied yeah. with Elon, Elon Musk. It was Mastodon that you were supposed to go to. It never really did take off. It never really took off. And you know, the reason why it was, it was this kind of a community public it didn't really have a really good design. Your your user handle was really confusing. It was just it was too geeky, Bruce, for like the masses to to accept. It, it has to be simple. If Apple taught me one thing, is that if you want people to to really love your tech products and services, you got to make it easy. You got to make it intuitive. And Mastodon was not that. Blue Sky, however, you got to remember this is the co-founder of or, of Twitter. Is a oh, sorry, the founder of Twitter is the co founder of Blue Sky. So he understands what it needs and the design elements for it. I just hope that we have an alternative. And what would be interesting to see what would happen if everybody did that mass exodus off Twitter onto a new platform? We thought it was going to be with Mastodon, it didn't happen. But it's time, you know, with the emergency services, it shows that there is that need. And I think something like that's going to happen uh, if Elon Musk keeps doing these crazy things. Well, there always is radio. It's, uh, you know, legacy media out there. And for some of the agencies to realize you got to contact the radio stations and for the public to know the importance in especially an emergency, there is radio. Yeah, that's right. And radio, and that's the reason why we still have radio today. It is one of the best ways to get information out. The thing about, you know, social media is something could be hot one day and then suddenly lose appeal or demographics use certain platforms. So it's hard to get messages out. But radio tried to try true and tested uh, for for. Decades. Well, of course, I'm biased, but, uh, you know, so is everyone listening to this right now. Uh, Thanks so much. I appreciate it. As always, Andy, your insight is absolutely amazing with the technological aspects of it, too. Andy Brar, tech and digital lifestyle expert. And you can check out his website, handyandymedia.com. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Bruce. Well, Jill is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett, guest hosting. Nice to have you with us. Talks to end the BC port strike. Well, they resume today after a 33-hour negotiation failed to result in any deal over the last couple days. So, around 7,500 workers from the ports around Vancouver, Prince Rupert and Vancouver Island are on the picket lines for the first time in over 30 years. The implications of this, the impact, huge. And it will get worse if that actually does continue. The pickets continue all the way through in the next few days or weeks ahead. But what about manufacturing? Well, people often don't realize how important manufacturing is to our economy. That from Andrew Andrew uh, Wynne-Williams with the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters And uh, some of the concern is in B.C., a ton of our goods are shipped over to Asia, about 40 percent. That's huge. We often think that they're always heading down to the States. Not necessarily the case. Well, our guest is Andrew Wynne-Williams, the Divisional Vice President with the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Andrew, thanks for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. Now, this is, uh, I mean, brand new. We're just into this, day three. But one has to think, if this goes on for many days ahead or weeks ahead, you know, you look back at supply chain issues, well, this is going to be a whole lot worse than what we've seen in the past, right? Well, I don't know if you can say it's going to be worse, but it's certainly terrible to come piled on top of, uh, you know, the experiences we've had over the past couple of years through the pandemic and then with the, the floods, et cetera, creating major supply chain issues for our, our industry. Andrew, just on the export side, let's take a look at what it means for the BC economy or the Western economy. What do we end up relying upon our ports for when it comes to shipping things over to Pan Pacific? Well, I think the variety of things that we make are uh, are often underestimated. So, of course, there's the traditional resource-based manufacturing, so wood products, pulp and paper products, that sort of thing. We have significant markets overseas for those. Uh, and then there's uh, people don't really realize the variety of things that we make in terms of, of electronics and, and other sorts of goods. A lot of things that are, have, you know, our, our manufacturing space in British Columbia has a lot of things that are are, are customized, uh, specialized, uh, and uh, a lot of engineering protected by IP and these sorts of things uh, need delivery. Uh, it's not like you can stockpile stuff when you're doing some uh, fairly customized work for people. Yeah, I was surprised because when I think of the ports in BC, I maybe my thinking is old-fashioned, but most of it was resource-based. I thought of uh, back in the day, it was a lot of coal. Well, it still is. Uh, forestry products for sure, and uh, a lot of that was not manufactured forestry product. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and minerals, um, basically raw resources, as I said, and some wheat from the prairies. What are we yep. talking about in terms of those manufactured goods that you just mentioned? What are some of the specifics there that we end up sending over? So when we look at, at that 40%, we can break it down in a bunch of different ways. But I think, uh, again, we do, have, we do ship manufactured timber products, particularly things that are uh, becoming a, more, more high-end and specialized in, in, the, in, or in demand in Asia. And then we have, uh, uh, what's a good example? Uh, f- let's say food processing equipment. You know, there's a there's a company in Richmond that makes very mm-hmm. high end, a very a very uh, uh, technologically advanced food processing equipment. Uh, that kind of material you need it's it's specialized. It needs to be installed. It requires a lot of engineering. Uh, they would ship things to Asia. They would ship things to Australia, to New Zealand. They're on you know six. They're on every continent except you know, Antarctica at this point. And for them, you know, a, a port closure means they can't get the bits and pieces that they need to do their on-site assembly out of the port. I was surprised that even groups, uh, Surrey Board of Trade expressed concern early that this strike was a possibility. And I thought, Surrey, hmm. There's uh, a ton of manufacturing in Surrey. Yeah. Yeah. And I we, didn't know that. I didn't so realize we, it. No, no, we have a, uh, so... Uh, it's about 8% of our GDP in British Columbia for going from memory. Uh, and uh, the, it's the variety of things that we make that people don't realize. Lots of equipment for the resource industries, which started here, obviously, because we have a strong resource base. 
but those that make you know really good equipment can then start selling it around the world and you know people in mongolia will be waiting for uh wheels for your for their big mining trucks which are made by rimex in agassi or conversely for that same company they uh, a lot of the steel they use comes in through the port so they can't meet their deadlines if if these kinds of companies i'm just using them as an example yeah. they wouldn't be able to meet deadlines if the the steel doesn't come into the port for any length of time, it then starts to become a problem. So for us, it's manufacturing. It's actually a two-way issue. It's not just goods going out. It's all the raw materials coming in and all the components coming in that we use in our manufacturing. And this is being felt not just in British Columbia. You know, we've got the original equipment manufacturers, you know, the big car companies in Ontario are asking us, what have we heard? Do we know what's happening? Are there... You know, it's, there's a lot of concern about about this already. We're talking with Andrew Wynn Williams, the divisional VP for the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, about the port strike in BC right now. Uh, Andrew, when we take a look at the port strike, we don't have a lot of precedent, uh, recent precedent, because it's been about 30 years since we had something like this here. Do you look to maybe some of the impacts and how long industries can hold out by looking south of the border? Do we know how long we can withstand this? So I think that I think right now you have to look at what the short-term impacts are. So those who can't meet deadlines. So there's, you know, there are, you know, I saw an economist interviewed who said, oh, you know, things will just be put off for a little while and, you know, tried to play down the impact. But that's an economist that, you know, hasn't had people saying, I already am struggling to meet deadlines because of the supply chain issues created by the pandemic and the floods. I am already have my margins because of the, uh, you know, squeeze because of the, the increase in costs. So it's not. So it, what's really impactful is that this is layering on top of the challenges that we've already faced, and so uh, you know, it's. It, it, I would think that you're going to have immediate impacts that are just going to accelerate as long as this goes on longer. As it goes on longer, how long is it going to be before we start to see? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but there must be talk about possible job losses that could result from this. Do we know? So I suspect that the, uh, in, the, in, in the short term, you're not going to see a lot of, in terms of job losses. The impact for the job losses will be longer tar- term when companies start to look at their costs and go, okay, so maybe it'll be easier for me to operate somewhere else. We're already a relatively high-cost environment. And so for some individuals, they will be saying, you know, I've been keeping my company here in BC because I like being in BC and this may just be the straw on the camel's back where they decide to move someplace else. Uh, so this is the this is the challenge. It's not just the, oh, if the port goes on for three years or for, for three weeks or something, the port's going to, you know, companies are going to start to close. It is that this is layered on on top of the other high cost issues and so companies are going to start to go, okay, so maybe it's time to try and move somewhere else. I don't know enough about the labor relations and the agreements between Canada and the states, but can some of the manufacturers up here ship through the states? Oh, yeah, so some would already be looking at alternative 
uh, shipping methods, whether it's by plane or or whether it's by rail and out through the U.S. or uh, you know other options, but that's always going to cost more, right? Yeah, I would imagine so. And it must be a concern right now for your members. So, Andrew, it comes to this as a question. What role are you playing, if any, in uh, in encouraging or lobbying for some sort of agreement? Well, we have spoken uh, to the, uh, the office of the Federal Minister of Labour, which would be governing any kind of... of, of you know, resolution for this, if they were going to legislate a resolution. We have recommended they act as quickly as possible. Uh, For us, you know, we we believe in the collective bargaining process, but the reality is, is that, you know, there's not just the two parties involved in this. There's the Canadian economy is involved in this. And so you can't just look at the impacts on the two parties at the table and say, oh, the collective bargaining process has to play out. You have to look at, at the, you know, the, the broader implications for the Canadian economy. And then the other factor is, you know, and it, it, is if they really wanted to have a good collective bargaining solution, they should have started months ago. It's not like it was not like the, it was a secret. The contract was ending, uh, so why haven't why haven't they why didn't they act sooner to make resolution? Why didn't the parties come to the table three months ago? It, it, it's that to me says that they also have doubts about the collective bargaining process, uh, and so maybe it's time for the government to act sooner rather than later. What's your next step then? Well, for us, we're continuing to put pressure on the federal government. We're continuing to track the impacts on our members, and we will relay those to the government uh, and, uh, you know, do our best to make sure the voice of manufacturing is heard. Okay. Well, all the best to you on that. Thanks so much for spending time with us on a holiday weekend. Well, thank you, Bruce, for the opportunity, and uh, have a good uh, holiday Monday. Yes, indeed, and it is Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett on your holiday weekend, Canada Day weekend. And this comes as there is a growing call to switch home and native land in the lyrics of O Canada to home on native land. One word. See that? Home and native to home on native land. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he's not opposed to the idea of changing the lyrics, but... He says any rewrites will only come after consultation with Canadians. So another change may be in the works. We'll have to see what that consultation process involves. We'll also have to see about that. But we're going to bring in Craig Baird. He is the host of Podcast Canadian History X. Craig, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I think we have to start a little bit, Craig, by going through some of the past changes with the National Anthem and what they were about, and then we'll talk about what's happening here. So, uh, in recent memory, what are we? what have we seen? Well, probably the most recent is when we saw it changing to In All of Us Command uh, rather than In thy, All Thy Sons Command. But there have been many changes actually over the years. I mean, the National Anthem was originally written in French. It wasn't even translated into English until 1906 or about 26 years after it was actually written. And even then, it was it had no religious references or anything like that. Those came in in 1926. And this talk of changing the anthem, it's been going on for quite a while. Even in 
1990, the phrase our home and native land was originally there was they were looking at changing it to our home and cherished land. So there's been many changes over the years. It's certainly not the original anthem that we had when it was first written in 1880. Now, you say that, Craig, and I thought that that change actually did go ahead because there were certainly public performances where they had home and cherished land. And then somehow, I guess, it didn't officially go ahead. Is that how it uh, did not unfold, I guess? Yeah, so what happened was it was in 1990 and the Toronto City Council had passed a resolution to actually recommend the Canadian government change those lyrics. So those changes may have only been happening in certain places. And really, it's up to the person performing it and where they are performing it if they want to change anything. And I mean, we've even had the past little while of the national anthem being sung in English and French for certain things. So again, it's not something that is static or written in stone. It definitely can change as the years go on and as society evolves. Okay, so let's uh, talk about this latest suggestion for a change in our ever-evolving society. What are we looking at now? So we're looking at changing it to home on native land uh, rather than home and native land. And like you said, it's really just one word going from and to on. And it we, we saw again, saw the, the same type of thing where we changed to in all of us command from in all thy sons command. And it's just kind of a way to for us to move ahead with reconciliation, I believe. And I think most Canadians probably won't have a problem with it. And that's probably why Justin Trudeau is putting it towards Canadians, because a lot of people did have an issue with the original change, which actually was replacing a change that had happened before. So I think going to Canadians is a good idea. It's interesting. We're talking about one word and the two words sound very similar. I almost wonder if the average person listening to this and not following what's happening would even be able to pick out the change. I I don't think they would pick out the change because we all sing it. We all know it. And you probably don't really think about the lyrics too much when you are singing it. And like you said, on and and are very similar in terms of, you know, when a crowded uh, hockey game is singing it. Canadians are said to be very nice people, but it's not always the case. When we've had these changes in the past, there have been some people that get very, very concerned and really want to hold on to the national anthem, even though, as you point out, it's been changing since uh, the 1920s. Why is it that we're so passionate about this? Well, it is our national anthem, but I mean, it it wasn't even our official national anthem until 1980. So in most of our lifetime, we didn't have it as the official. It was the de facto national anthem. And that only really started in 1939 when King George VI remained at attention during the playing at the dedication of the National War Memorial. So it's relatively new, but I think we, we have a lot of attachment to it, whether it's through, like I said, singing it at hockey games or things like that. And we feel it shouldn't change because changing the national anthem isn't really something that happens. I don't think the Americans have ever changed their national anthem. But again, it can happen. It has happened in the past, and it can be a good thing to reflect society's changes. But maybe if many people feel like maybe it's erasing the past or changing the past when when really it's not. From a historian's perspective, looking at the national anthem, when you go through it, do you see anything in there that stands out as something that may be also worth consideration of change? Or in our lens of 2023, are we pretty spot on now? 
I think we're pretty spot on now. I, I think the big thing is the on native land because it does reflect the truth and reconciliation that we are going through. And I think that that can be a, a good thing for us. I mean, there's certain things maybe people feel the true patriot love might be more militaristic than we like, but I don't see anything like that really being an issue. I think changing it for, to our home and native land is probably something that would be a good thing and probably one of the last changes we'll, we would make to it. I'm very much aware of the changes and talk of changes over my lifetime to our national anthem. But is this something we see in other countries or is this just a Canadian thing? I don't really think we see it very much in other countries. Uh, like I said, in the United States, I don't think they've ever changed their anthem. And that dates back to the War of 1812, essentially. It's not something that's very common, uh, but it, like I said, in Canada, we have done it. I'm sure other countries have done it. And people just have to stop looking at it as a static written in stone document. And it's not, it, it evolves, it changes. We had no reference to God in it when it was first written in English. And that came a little while later. We had in all thy sons command to kind of make it more patriotic, especially during the first world war. And then we changed that back to it original lyrics and of in all of us command. So people just have to look at it as not a static document. Yeah, Bruce Claggett, guest hosting on the Jill Bennett Show. We are talking about a possible change to our national anthem, O Canada, a one-word change, home on native land being the suggestion. Our prime minister says he's okay if there's enough consultation, maybe a good idea. And what do you think about this? Give us a shout, 604-280-9898. Our guest is Craig Baird. He is the host of the podcast Canadian History X. And Craig, thanks again for staying with us. Really, it's uh, I'm always a little bit surprised at how passionate people are, Craig, when it comes to the National Anthem. They really can be. I mean, when we first were even just looking at changing the uh, the original lyrics to an All of Us Command, I mean, that was a long process. It was really kind of put forward officially in 2010. We had a bill in 2014 that failed, and then we introduced another bill in 2016, and then it wasn't until 2018 where it officially changed. And a lot of people were unhappy with that change. We tend to be, like you said, very passionate about our anthem. Let's see if some of that passion is shared in Coquitlam. Leslie, good morning, Leslie gentlemen. I don't like, and I'm an old, old person, uh, 80s knocking on my door now. When I went to school in the 40s, we were taught way back when that Canada, first of all, just had wild animals. Then, of course, some people this way, some people that way. Native people apparently first came across the Bering Strait, and you could walk across because it, was, it wasn't water. There was land there. And they came down through the coming down the west coast of Canada and entering that way and going down into also the states. So I look at it this way after working 28 years on my family tree, my family came in 1903 to Canada from Europe. So I look at it, we are all immigrants. Why do we have to keep changing this country to suit certain religions or certain uh, nationalities? Leslie, I think some of the, what you're saying there is certainly a, an idea that's felt by many and held on to by uh, many. And there are others that say, you know what, this is a time to revisit that and to open our minds and get more information that is really relevant and up to date and based in actual fact. 
When it comes to what we have learned, Craig, what have we started to learn that's even newer? I appreciate the phone call, Leslie. But Craig, what have we learned uh, along these lines in the past uh, decades that can change our thinking? Well, we we do look at things like the crossing of the Bering Strait and the fact that the indigenous have been here for essentially time immemorial. Uh, I mean, my ancestors came here in the 1840s from the the Irish famine, so they've been here for quite a while, but the indigenous have been here much longer and we were coming to their land. I mean, we try not to say that it was discovered because there were already people living here. And I really think the change to the lyrics is just reflecting that to say that, you know, we recognize this is on native land. And it's the same reason why when there's city council meetings or hockey games, we say this is Treaty 4 land or Treaty 6 land or whatever it might be, because we're acknowledging that before we were here, before settlers and, and Europeans came, the indigenous people were here on this land. It is a change of thinking. Even in my life, I've known that, uh, well, when I was in school, we we talked about discovery, like it was uh, Christopher Columbus that discovered the United States. And it was certainly discovered by the people that came over from Europe when we're talking about Canada. That has had to be a change of thinking for many of us, including myself. So I guess this is now reflected in a national anthem where lyrics are being rethought. Without a doubt, we're, we're rethinking the lyrics, we're looking at them in a new way, and we're changing them to reflect our history. Because like you said earlier, we tend to change our the lyrics of the National Anthem at certain points in our history, and it kind of is like a guide to our history based on that. And so we're looking at things differently now, and that is reflecting in the fact that we would like to change the National Anthem, or at least I think stop saying, you know, we should stop saying we're changing the National Anthem, we're changing one yeah, word we're within changing the National Anthem. Word. We have... When you take a look at all the different changes or tweaks, maybe tweaks is a better word, uh, it has changed over the years. But we're tweaking it, and in this case, we're tweaking it with one word. Going to Nanaimo and George. George, what are your thoughts? I'm 100% opposed to the change. This is nothing more than just a bunch of virtue-signaling woke nonsense. We're sick and tired of it. We'd like to keep our traditions intact. We have so few. They're not being chipped away. So no, and I and I say in all thy sons command when I sing it, I don't sing in all of us command. George, is there a point where you say to yourself, you know, this is how I feel, but maybe some people feel a little bit more passionate because they've got more connection to the lyrics needing to be changed? No, this is just catering. It's the same old stuff. It's just catering to the latest thing. You're trying to appease a bunch of people. You're trying to, it's white man guilt. It's all part of the whole thing. We all live in the country together. We all should just have one anthem and stop changing stuff. Appreciate the phone call, George. And that is a real feeling that is felt by many, many people. I don't think George is alone in that. And they get um, some strong feelings one way or the other. But there are others out there that may be, feeling like the national anthem really never addressed who they were as a people. And do you think, Craig, that it comes any closer with these changes to talking to the people that maybe felt left out by a national anthem? 
I really think so by, by saying it's on native land. It's not really changing anything within our history. Like I said, it's just acknowledging things. And in regard to what George said, if we want to be traditional, then he should be singing Thou Dost in Us Command, because that's the original English lyrics from 1908 until it was changed in 1913 to In All Thy Sons Command. So if we're talking tradition, I mean, even the national anthem, like I said, it was de facto until 1980. So it's there is tradition to it, but traditions can change and traditions can evolve. And that's, I think, what's happening now. Craig, you've got your podcast. What are some of the big topics that you find you get a lot of uh, input and feedback on when it comes to Canadian history in general? I get a lot of feedback when I tend to cover things that are a bit darker from our history. Um, actually, this next week, I have, or in a few weeks, I have the 1907 Asiatic riot that happened in Vancouver, like I said, in 1907, when uh, a large group of people decided to smash up Chinatown and Japantown. So I tend to get more feedback on those because I am addressing very dark aspects of our history. And I do it not to say that, oh, this is a bad, you know, Canada is a bad place, but just to acknowledge that bad things have happened in our past and to make sure things like that don't happen again. Absolutely. And when you talk about some of these bad things happening in our past, at least we do talk about them. And that's something we haven't always done a very good job of. Do you think some of this is now creeping into curriculum now in schools? I would hope so. When I was in school in the 1990s, we, you know, we used words like Indian, which we wouldn't use anymore. And we didn't really address certain things in our history. I had no idea about residential schools or anything like that. So I'm hoping that curriculums are changing to reflect that we have a very complex history. We have a great history. We have dark aspects to it. And we're just trying to learn about all of it and assess all of it over the course of, you know, the hundreds of years that people have lived here in various capacities. Craig, let's sneak in one more phone call here. Let's try White Rock and Rob. Rob, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing? Um, what I, I, people, I think, are misunderstanding is the word native. I mean, I was born here, so I'm a, I'm a native Canadian. So if you're, you know, it's basically it's not a big thing. Don't you, are you born in Canada, correct? Me? Yeah, you were born in Canada. I was indeed. Yeah, so you're a native Canadian. So I don't understand the big hoo-ha about this. Well, we've had it, and thanks. I appreciate uh, the phone call, Rob, because I think you're touching on something where we've had a problem when it comes to language. In this case, native, and Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about indigenous, but we've had so many changes in language over the years that it becomes blurry. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I believe it is referring to to Indigenous, but it's like listening to a Beatles song. You interpret what you get out of it. It might not be what was originally written. And so some people might interpret it as on Native land and referring to their own history uh, going back a few hundred years, or they might interpret it as on Indigenous land. So it's really, like you said, it's in the word and how you see it. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something. On a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Well, it sounds like a whole lot of fun. That from the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. A global box office hit, or supposed to be one, but perhaps not. It sounds like it's a whole lot of fun, but uh, you know what? We'll get his take on it. Steve Stebbing is the national movie guy for The Shift. 
with Shane Hewitt. Steve, thanks uh, for spending some time on the holiday weekend with us. This movie is supposed to be huge. What's going on here? Yeah, it almost feels like maybe the current movie climate has forgotten Indiana Jones uh, or maybe uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull burnt them a bit too much for them <laughs> to have faith in a, in a new film. Uh, and maybe even the fact that Steven Spielberg isn't the director on this one, but uh, is just producing it, maybe driving people away. But I, I mean, having seen the film myself, I thought it was a, a lot of fun and that James Mangold, who also uh, writes, uh, wrote this film as well uh, in a handful of other people um, makes this feel like a Spielberg movie. And I think it's kind of the proper way for Indy to go off into the sunset, but, Unfortunately, yeah. only sixty million dollars for its opening weekend in uh, in North America, which is uh, a far cry from what the projection was. Who knows? It might be the sign of the times or a lack of promotion. I I don't think so. I think I saw so no. much promotion for it. it wasn't funny. But uh, for those that do choose to go and see this, let's get into a little bit more depth here, Steve. What type of movie is it uh, compared to the franchise and what can we expect? I think this one is more of a uh, kind of a return to uh, the artifact hunting that is Indiana Jones, um, less the aliens that kind of encompass the third act of the last film. Uh, which kind of felt like a uh, George Lucas fever dream combined combined with uh, with Spielberg's um, vision of where he wanted the character to go. Um, there is acknowledgments of what didn't work in the last movie, um, but also a, a, a want to kind of bring things full circle, kind of bring things back uh, a bit from the Raider, from Raiders, a bit from Last Crusade, um, just kind of encompassing everything that that Indy has gone through and even that Harrison Ford has gone through as an actor uh, within this series. And I don't know, as an indie fan, I'm kind of very happy with the results here. And I, I know people are a little angry about the CG heavy stuff, but the beginning stuff, seeing young Indiana Jones or younger Indiana Jones uh, was so satisfying. Even if uh, the uh, younger mask didn't, stay true the whole time it's still a very entertaining opening you know disney made a huge commitment and you can see that by going to disneyland and going on the ride down there a few years ago they changed over and brought that ride in and when i was in disneyland that was a huge lineup to go on the indiana jones adventure i think they call it but mm -hmm. um you know I, I thought boy there are a lot of fans here are those fans still around or did they morph into something else? I don't, you know, I, I, I have these questions all the time because uh, it feels like in, in some regards um, that COVID and the pandemic made the reigniting of theaters feel sluggish and that a lot of the films that we expect to produce don't produce. But then there are the gimmies like Tom Cruise brings people back to the theaters last year with Tom, Top Gun Maverick, one of the the best producing films yeah. of the year. And I also expect the same to come from Mission Impossible in uh, less than two weeks here. Um, but I mean, Tom Cruise is bona fide box office gold. Like he rarely has a film that sputters. Um, but even Marvel films are sputtering right now. There's there's a lot of the tried tested and true films that you think would be box office hits. There are 
um, underperforming and leaving studios a little bit baffled. And I don't think uh, in in a large degree, I don't think it's the caliber of the films. I think there are still some very great films that are just kind of getting left in the dust or or um, after the first two weeks kind of being forgotten. But maybe it's that streaming and, and the the um, the comfortability of being at home and bringing your films home is more of a draw than going to the theaters. Well, and here's the other thing that I often wonder about. It used to be that the expression was, oh, it's a great film, but you got to see it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Well, my screen at home, and it's a fairly modest one. It's 65 inches, a great TV though. And I've got 400 watts of audio with a nice big subwoofer behind me in a small townhouse. That does a pretty good job Mm -hmm. of seeing some of these movies. Are we adapting some of our behavior coming out of uh, the pandemic to being more likely to see some of these big movies on our home screen? I, I think it is yes and no. And I think it always kind of depends on the person you're asking to find the right conduit for that one. The casual viewer, yeah, watching it at home is probably going to be um, just as good, if not better, than, you know, having to go out of your comfort zone into a theater and sitting with a bunch of strangers. But as far as like a, a guy that sees movies almost constantly, like I do, I still have such a reverence for the theaters and a film like Indiana Jones. Um, just because that's where I experienced pretty much every other one is on the big screen. I couldn't do it any differently than I, than I have, or like something like asteroid city, the new, uh, Wes Anderson film, it just begs to be seen on the big screen. It, it, the way it's framed, the, the colorful nature of it, the sound design and everything you want to be there, um, with it bigger than any possible way that you can see it at home. Absolutely. So it, it really, it really and it depends on the movie. You're going to see no hard feelings at home, probably, before you'll go see it in the theaters. Talking with Steve Stibbings, uh, the National Movie Guide for The Shift with Shane Hewitt. Steve, you know, the one thing that comes to my mind, though, is the power of stardom. And mm-hmm. I think that may have morphed or changed a little bit. Is Harrison Ford still really a draw? I know this is kind of like a tip of the hat to his career, this one movie. But do we still have the same sort of notion of the big Hollywood star as being the cell? I think we still have that reverence for for Harrison, for sure. I mean, he does have two of the most iconic film characters of all time with Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Um, Both characters exude the charm in which we really attribute to Harrison himself. And if anybody's seen any late night talk show interviews with him and see how he carries with himself and he's very, um, curmudgeon laissez-faire, if I can call it that. Oh yeah. Um, there's something, there's something just super endearing about him. And, um, I would have thought that that would have led to more people being more excited to see him in this film. Like it did for me. Um, but I think he's still a throwback to that hero era of actors. And I think nobody does it like Harrison Ford. I, I, I honestly, I, I can't, he's so idiosyncratic that I can't, I can't compare him to anybody. He's still got that charm. What I can't figure out is then there is Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise is, as you point out, still a reliable pack him into the theater type guy. 
And Tom Cruise still has, to my notion, now he's a great actor. I think he's fantastic. But mm-hmm. he's kind of a wingnut. And mm-hmm. uh, he strikes me as someone that really, in real life, you might not have the same sort of uh, credibility if you had a talk with him. And yet yeah. he still packs him in. How do we explain Tom Cruise? I don't think any of us has the Thetan level to hang with Tom Cruise uh, in whatever Scientology yeah. levels that he's at. I think he's just like on a weird level that I I don't think a lot of um, a lot of his audience could relate to it at all. He is definitely a weirdo. He's a well, I'm cu- talking a, more a, about a couch the jumping, jumper. Yeah, the couch yeah. jumping from, you know, yeah. talk about yeah. talk shows. There's there's nothing really relatable in him as a human being, um, but what we I think we can all universally agree on is that he has a love for the industry, a love for cinema, a love for theaters um, that extends beyond his own films. I think he just wants the medium to survive and thrive and um for there to be a place for storytelling for years to come. And that's from the bottom to the top. So as far as an industry um, face, I think he is really damn good for the industry, no matter what you think about his, uh, his personal life. Yeah, Bruce Clank, in for Jill Bennett. My apologies for the earworm. They'll stay with you for the rest of your holiday weekend but uh there are other movies besides indiana jones and the dial of destiny to talk about the new barbie movie being one of them steve stebbing is the national movie guy for the shift with shane hewitt steve uh the barbie movie boy that's getting a lot of talk isn't it yeah and i think it's because the evolution of it went into an area that i don't think anybody thought it would uh because when it was first presented uh i think amy schumer was attached to it uh, and I don't know who the writer and director was at the time, but when she left the project, uh, Greta Gerwig, uh, whose uh, recent, more recent films would be uh, The Little Women Adaptation or uh, Lady Bird, both very popular films, uh, she stepped in to write and direct the film. And then uh, Margot Robbie joined as Barbie, Ryan Gosling joined as Ken. And I think the expectations just started climbing from there. And I think it's going to be a great cast. Yeah, I think it's going to be one of the biggest movies of the summer, but it is in a tough week because it also is released the same day as the brand new Christopher Nolan film Oppenheimer. Well, and we'll get to that in a second. I was surprised my wife mentioned this to me and I thought she was joking at first. She said, I want to see the Barbie movie. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, no, no, she's serious. I don't know if it's about the mm-hmm. shoes, though. So there is a lot of marketing attached to that. Yeah. Well, I think it's because they're going to play with how subversive that we can be with Barbie, that we can also play with nostalgia. We can also play in the avenues of forgotten playthings and relevancy. And, and there's just there's Hits a lot that. of yeah. yeah, there's a lot of facets to pull in here, and especially like now, given the new trailer, we see that. Barbie gets sent out into the real world and kind of gets a dose of uh, non-plastic reality. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I might even be compelled to see that myself. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it is going to be interesting. Now, the other one you mentioned here? Oh, good old Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love the pause. Yeah. Right. Um, tell us about this. 
Yeah, so this is the story of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, who, of course, uh, developed the uh, nuclear bomb uh, to try and win World War II. And, um, I mean, the cast from top to bottom, I mean, playing Oppenheimer is uh, Killian Murphy, uh, who I would say, I, I mean, I've been a fan of his since 28 Days Later and and everything he's done, but probably his his biggest uh, hat tip right now is streaming on Netflix now, Peaky Blinders. Uh, so there aren't a lot of people out there that don't recognize his face right now. But uh, I, I think the main star of this one is Christopher Nolan, who... Uh, who always brought cinema in a big, big, big way. Uh, no matter how people feel about Tenet or not, that was one of the big one of the big films that kind of brought audiences a bit back uh, during the uh, pandemic era. And uh, we've been waiting for this one because this is a this is a passion project of his that he's been wanting to do for years. Uh, and it just looks like such a cool mix of cinema. I mean, we have uh, some black and white stuff in here. Uh, of course, some good character drama and just the grandioseness of nolan that he brings to his film all shot on imax cameras so the bigger the better when it comes to oppenheimer viewing you know it's going to be a big movie when you have those elements in there it was intended to be a big movie are we talking about oscar material here i think that there's a good um opportunity for uh oscar nominations especially in the technical categories and everything um, and given just from the trailer, I, you might even see a nod go to Killian Murphy, which would be the first in his career. Um, and maybe uh, Matt Damon, who might be looking at two possible Oscar nominations this year mm. with Oppenheimer and then from with Air from earlier this year, which he was also very, very good in. Um, so I, I don't know, like especially because we're sitting at summer right now. So sometimes when it comes to um award season we're almost not even thinking that yet even though it's only you know three months off or so yeah um but uh i mean if oppenheimer is not in the running in in people's minds in some sort then uh christopher nolan has fallen down some rungs of the uh, director's ladder at this point steve before we let you go uh one other movie Mm. that you may recommend that may be overlooked at this point I think animation is very strong this year with uh, Spider-Man, uh, with uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, um, with Nimona just debuting on on uh, Netflix or two of the better animated films this year. I think uh, uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, film, uh, uh, The Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think it's called, uh, mm-hmm. that Seth Rogen produced and everything. I think that is going to be your sleeper hit this year um that people oh, sorry it's called mutant mayhem and uh yeah i mean they have turtles that are actually voiced by real teenagers yeah um and and uh plus a voice cast around it that i absolutely adore including including a uh, ao debris who is uh on the hit show uh the bear right now she is the voice of april o'neill for this film and just all the trailers for me for it make me feel excited. I don't think people are talking about it enough. It really is a summer that's got something for everyone in there. They always say that, right? But it is true. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. almost something for everyone in there. Thanks a lot, Steve. Of course. Thanks, Bruce.